Thank you, John. Not exactly a Thanksgiving-themed text, but we're going to jump right in. It's going to be a great time. Well, hey, guys, so good to be with you this morning. My name is Tony. I'm one of our college pastors here. I have the privilege of pastoring and leading Salt St. Paul, and I'm so good crew. So excited to be with you this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 8, so if you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to turn there. It's about 28 verses. We're not going to hit on all of them because it's a lengthy dialogue between Jesus and the religious rulers. But before we get into it, I just want to set you the scene. The first half of John 8 was Jesus meeting the woman who was caught in adultery. It's this incredible act of grace towards a person who was desperate and in need and was met with grace. What we're going to see in this next half of John 8 is a group of people that were deceived that believed that they were good without God, they were good without Jesus. So as we open up that time together, my question for you is, have you ever been self-deceived? Yes. You know, when you believe something about yourself that's not true? I asked our staff if I could use this example, specifically Juliana, and she said yes, okay. So I've got an example for you guys. One of our staff, her name's Juliana. She's hilarious, she's a ton of fun. And one of the funniest things about Juliana is her constant propensity towards self-deception. Okay, this is not a character issue. This is just genuinely her optimism. There's this moment a year ago, Juliana's like 5'2". Okay, she says she's 5'3 and three quarters, but really she's like 5'2", tiny little human. And she's sitting there with one of our staff last year who was literally five or six inches taller than her and somehow it came out in the conversation that for the last three years, Juliana had believed that they were the same height. Okay, like literally in her mind's eye, she was like, we're the same height. And her logic was, it's because I don't have to look up to you. I was like, okay, that's not how height works. Later on, multiple times throughout this last year, she would talk about how short people were and then we'd be like, Julie, they're taller than you and it would break her mind. Okay, like that has happened quite literally so many times. But that's the self-deception of Julie, that she thinks that she's actually taller than she actually is. Okay, here's the setting by which we find ourselves in John chapter 8. Not exactly a feel-good text, but a text by which the people of that time, the religious rulers, were looking at Jesus completely self-deceived. They believed that they were holier than they actually were, they were more free than they actually were, and they were in the family of God. As we set our time together, as we journey through this text, I'm just gonna ask us all to have a humble posture as we listen to the words of Jesus. Because the truth is, all of us have a leaning towards self-deception. Every single person in this room tends to think they're doing better than they actually are. We're holier than we actually are. We're healthier than we actually are. We're more humble than we actually are. I know this is my ditch as a Christian time and time again to think that I'm healthier, holier, and humbler than I actually are. And so in this moment, what Jesus is going to do is expose our pride and our self-deception and invite us into a life of humility and honesty with him. Okay, open up your Bibles to John chapter 8. My big idea for us today is that self-deception destroys your soul. And the two deceptions that Jesus is going to unearth in the, in the Pharisees and unearth in us is the deception of our freedom and of our family. Verse 31 says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Okay, so here's the flow that we're going to journey through as we look into our text today. We're going to look at, within each part, two parts. Okay, so it's kind of partception. Within each part of the sermon, we're going to look at the doctrine that Jesus is wanting to invite us into as believers in Christ. 
And then we're going to look at the deception that our flesh so temptingly wants to go towards. And then we're going to see Jesus destroy the doctrine. So that's like four Ds in a row. But we're going to begin with the doctrine that we have in point one, which is Jesus offers freedom through his word. Verse 31 says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Okay, so here's the very basic, simple truth that we need to garner this morning. If you abide in his word, you are his disciples. Abiding in the word of God is a sign of discipleship to Jesus. In a world that says you can follow Jesus without loving the Bible, who says, I want to follow Jesus because I like who he is, but not with the words he says. What Jesus wants to invite us into is discipleship is abiding in the word. And here's the product of abiding in discipleship. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Okay, this right here is important for us because this is the opposite relationship with truth that our culture has. If you think about it, right? Our culture says truth is oppressive. It's coercive, it's manipulative. Authoritative truth is not something to be revered or sought after, but something to throw away and dismantle. We look at the truth in our culture as something that enslaves us, not something that sets us free. Yet what Jesus says here is countercultural and yet beautiful. That if you want true freedom, freedom knowing that your heart is in line with the design of your creator, freedom in light of your, the soul that you have, then you need to abide in his word. The way Jesus will define freedom through the gospel narratives and through the book of the Bible is not what you want to do, which is how our culture defines freedom. Freedom is ultimately self-agency and action. Whatever I want to do, I do. I wanna eat that cheesecake, I eat it. I really want cheesecake right now, but you know, I want to do this thing, I do it. I have a fleshly desire, I live into it. I want to be with this person, I be with that person. That's what freedom looks like in our culture, primarily through the lens of sexuality, economic freedom, all these other types of freedom. This is what Jesus says freedom is. Christian freedom is not doing whatever you want to do, but living in alignment with the word of God. It is walking with Jesus and saying your desires over my desires your will over my will, and where we find that is in the word of God. So in essence, the primary way that Jesus offers us freedom and flourishing in God's designs and desires is by living in his word. Okay, this is so important because I don't know about you guys, but when I think about the Bible, I primarily think it through the lens of duty, okay? Similar to eating vegetables or doing your dishes. All right, just think about this with me. Duty is doing something good for your future that you know is good for you, but not something you want to do. Much of us view the Bible this way. I know I view it this way. When it's 6 a.m. in the morning, that is like the last thing I want to do. Open up an ancient manuscript and be like, oh, God, yes, what do you want to do for me? That's not what I want to do. I want to, like, go back to sleep and then eat food. Like, that's what I actually want. I view the Bible often as a place of duty and as something that I should do. Here's why what Jesus is saying here is so important, is Jesus is saying the word of God is not just something that's good for you, but something that can transform the very inner workings of your soul. What if the Bible is not a good vegetable to eat or a dish to clean, but what if the Bible is meant to be a blueprint for how we were designed to live and breathe and, and flourish in Christ? What if it was the very metric by which our souls and our minds would be renewed so that we could look more like Jesus? I love that song. Freedom, freedom in him is looking more like Jesus. 
I think for some of us, we have such a hard time committing to the word of God because we think it's something we should do versus something that can transform us. So here's kind of the application point of this. This is not the, end, the whole of the sermon, but this is important for us. What if this week the goal of our time with Jesus wasn't just to read more, okay? Quantity is great. I hope you read a lot. What if it was coming into the word of God with a posture of saying this isn't just something that's good for me. This is something that I want to change my soul. What if we viewed the word of God as transformative? Okay, so that's the invitation that Jesus wants to offer us, freedom through his word, true freedom, not the freedom of culture, but the freedom of the world. And the question is, why do we not take him up on his offer? Why is it that so much of our Christian lives feels dull and dutiful, not transformative and life-giving? That's because of deception number one, we believe we're already free. Verse 33 says this, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I tell you, everyone who has practiced sin is a slave to sin. Okay, so in light of the freedom that Jesus offered, the religious rulers weren't like, oh my gosh, thank you, Jesus. I've been looking for that my whole life. That's not what they said. They looked at Jesus and said, we're good. We're already free. We're of the family of Abraham, the lineage of, G of the Jews. We're already free. We don't need your freedom. And I'm, I just want to say, this sounds crazy, right? Like, if you were there with Jesus, wouldn't you be like, yes, Jesus, thank you. I want freedom. I want to experience the freedom that you offer me. Wouldn't you respond differently? And my guess is, actually, most of us wouldn't. Like the Jews, like the religious leaders, our cultural response is often saying, Jesus, I'm already free. I don't need your freedom. I feel free. I don't need what you have to offer. Think about this. We live in a culture that we just assume the baseline individualistic reality is that all of us are free. Economic freedom, sexual freedom, political freedom. Heck, the United States of America is built on one word, freedom. You know, Fourth of July, great holiday, but you know, that's what we believe. We believe that we are ultimately free. So in a world that believes freedom is free, the offer of freedom isn't compelling. And I think this type of logic that we're already free has seeped into even my own heart as a disciple. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but in my time with Jesus, I'm rarely like, oh, Jesus, I'm enslaved. I need freedom. It's usually like, oh, you know, Jesus, thank you for your kind words this morning. You know, it's like, oh, that's like really great and helpful, but really I'm actually doing okay. My temptation as a disciple is to believe that I'm already free, which is why I'm not desperate for the invitation of Jesus. So here's how Jesus destroys the deception of the religious rulers and us. He says, you think you're free because your, your political background, your pedigree, your economic reality, your constitution, here's what Jesus says we are. We are slaves. Spiritually speaking, we are slaves to our sin. This is where the conversation takes a real downturn, okay? It's about to get real dark in like 10 verses. You're gonna love it. But in this moment, he's saying to the religious leaders, you think you're free because you can make your own decisions. Here's the reality of your soul. You are a slave. Think about what it means to be a slave. Slaves are stripped of their dignity. They lose aspects of their humanity. They no longer have agency over their actions. Redemption Church, what Jesus is saying to those religious rulers is what he's saying to us. Sin owns you. It sells you. It takes advantage of you. This is the reality of sin. Jesus here is describing a fundamental component of what we believe here as Christians. That sin is not a minor slip up. It is a major destruction to your soul. 
that sin takes away your freedom. Something we tell college students all the time is that you do sin and then sin does you. You fall into habitual sin and then sin becomes your master. Far more addicting than alcohol and hard drugs is a fleshly reality of sin and how it controls us. We become a puppet to our own preferences and our desires. I think all of us have experienced something like this. This is what sin sounds like internally. I don't want to, but I can't stop. I can't stop worrying about my future. I can't stop watching porn. I can't stop freaking out at my kids. I can't stop being insecure in my relationship. I can't stop thinking about my ex. This is what sin feels like internally. When you cannot stop, you want to stop, but you cannot because you are enslaved. So this is what Jesus is saying to the religious rulers and all of us. You think you're free because of your background, your economic potential, your whatever. You are not. You are a slave. So the question is, if that's true, how do we see clearly? How do we not live behind a facade of freedom and how do we actually experience true freedom? Here's the answer, it's completely backwards, but that's Christianity. By admitting you're a slave in need of liberation. Look with me to verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Okay, here's the reality. If you want freedom, you have to come to Jesus admitting you're a slave. If you want to actually experience the freedom of Christ, you need to have an honesty moment with Jesus and with the people in your life saying, I don't have my life together. In desperation coming to Christ and saying, I am enslaved by my sin. There's nothing I can do to get myself out of this situation. I need Jesus. And guys, early on in your walk with Jesus, confessing sin was so freeing, wasn't it? Like when you're in college and you're like, oh my gosh, like I've never told anything ne anyone negative about my life, you know? And then you show up and then you're like, oh my gosh, the freedom of confessing sin. And you get to experience the beauty of telling people about the enslavement of your soul. And then over time, deception begins to creep in. Where it's almost like you're like, ah, oh, that's stuff I used to do, but now I don't do that anymore. I used to be authentic about my sin, but now I'm a leader. I can't tell people about that. I used to be desperate for Jesus, but now that's for other people and not for me. This is the progression many of us have. Slowly, the deception creeps in, and my guess is if you are honest with yourself, if you're living in this deception, pretending like you're holier than you actually are, pretending like you're more humble than you actually are, pretending like you're healthier than you actually are, it's killing you. It's eating up your soul. So I think one of the tragedies about Christianity in America is sometimes we're far more concerned about looking free than actually being free. We're far more concerned about looking holy than actually being humble at the feet of Jesus. And I just wonder what God would do in our church family if we were not people who try to persuade other people that we were free, holy, and healthy, but we just came as broken to the feet of Jesus and in connection groups this week. We just showed up and said, guys, here's a list of things that I'm enslaved to that I need freedom from. So that's what we need to do. We need to admit that we're a slave and then, and then run to the son. Verse 36 says, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The bad news of the gospel is this. Slaves cannot set themselves free. The good news of the gospel is that the son can. So as we run to the song, we get to experience freedom. So that's part one. 
that Jesus tackles freedom. The second part is a little shorter. That was a little long. Part one, the second thing we're going to be looking at is how he handles family. Look with me to verse 39. Just want to give you a heads up. This is a pretty intense text. We'll talk about it. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to him, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was murdered from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. Okay, we're going to come back to the whole the devil is your dad thing in just a second, okay? Let's begin. Very intense. Very different from the first half of John 8. But anyways, let's, let's talk about the doctrine that Jesus invites us to. The first doctrine is he invites us into God's family. Okay, this is good news. The invitation of sonship begins in verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And not only will you have freedom, but you will not have to taste death. Verse 52, uh, part B says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So here's what Jesus is offering to the religious rulers. He's offering a new identity from a slave to a son, from bondage to an heir, from a son of the devil to a son of God. We have an invitation into the throne room of grace by the blood of Jesus. That's good news, and yet we deny it. Why is that? Because what we're going to see is the same logic for freedom, that the temptation of the religious rulers is a temptation for us. Sometimes we would rather be self-deceived and a slave than honest and an heir. We would rather actually look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm good. I don't need your family because I come from a pretty good one. So here's the deception that we're going to see. We believe we're from a good enough family. They answered him, Abraham is our father. The reason why this is so important for the Jews is because the Jews had believed that Jewish lineage was enough to get them into the family of God. The rebuttal to being invited into the family of Jesus was not, thank you, I'd love to be a part of that family. It was, I'm from a pretty good family. This is really important. The thing that stopped the religious leaders from being in God's family is they believed that they were from a good one. They believed that their family was a good family, the Jewish lineage, and therefore they believed they were good people. This, too, is what stops people of our culture from wanting to follow Jesus. We believe in our culture that people are fundamentally good, that throughout systems and structures they become evil. But because we think we're good and we're from a good family, we do not need a good God. This problem of believing we're from a good family is a huge problem in the church today. Guys, as college ministry staff, the biggest barrier to people coming to know Jesus actually isn't a life of sin. It's, it's, you know, people who are stuck in a crazy life of sin, they come in, they hear the gospel, and they're like, I want that. I want whatever Jesus has for me. I want the forgiveness and the freedom and the love of the gospel. It's like the first half of John 8. That woman who was caught in adultery, she's not confused. She knows that she's a broken sinner in need of grace. That she goes to easily to Jesus. The hardest people to convince they need a God is people who already believe they're good. See, the simple reality is the ha second half of John 8 is a much harder gospel invitation. See, what is ironic is sometimes the biggest barrier for someone to become a Christian is actually being from a Christian home. 
because they come to believe that they're already a good person. And if they're good, that means they do not need a good God. And maybe for some of us in this room this morning, the invitation for you is to not say Abraham is your father, but run to Jesus. To not say my lineage, my history, my childhood home, my Christian education, that's what gets me a foot into the kingdom of God, but to say only Jesus does. Here's how Jesus destroys this deception that we are good because we come from a good family. He says in verse 44, the most intense verses ever, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Guys, these are some fighting words, you know? <laughs> Holy cow. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're not a good person from a good family. He's looking at the religious leaders who are from the lineage of Abraham, who actually believe that they're good because of their lineage. And he's saying, you're not a good person from a good family. You're an evil person from an evil family. Drew touched on this a couple weeks ago, but this is the reality of the human condition. We are not good people that eventually become evil. We are people born evil that need a good God to rescue us. So what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders is you are not a good person from a good family. Here's something really important that Jesus is trying to communicate here. In the world, there are not good people and bad people. There are saved people and bad people. All of us are fallen in need of the grace of a savior. No matter how moral or kind or polite you are, you are not saved by Christ. You are not saved if not by the cross of Christ. Which, okay. This, this is bad news, right? This is bad news that in our flesh, in our natural reality, we are sons and daughters of the devil. But here's the good news. We can be invited into a better family. You don't have to be a slave. You can be a son. And like the freedom concept, the only prerequisite is that we would be honest with Jesus to say, I see the evil in my heart. I see the sin in my flesh. I see the ways that I'm a son or daughter of the devil and not of the king. In my honesty to Jesus, Jesus meets us with grace. And the invite he's offering to you is to come into the family of God. So as we look at the second half of John 8, here's what we find. Religious leaders that were self-deceived about who they were. They believed that they were holier than they actually were, that they were healthier than they actually were, they were more humble than they actually were. And what Jesus is exposing in them is a simple reality that they're not. They're not free, they're slaves to their sin. They're not in the family of God, they're in the family of the devil. The question for us this morning is how can Jesus say these things? Why is Jesus allowed to proclaim that over the religious leaders? And the simple reality is in verse 57 through 59, and that is that he is God. This is top five coolest verses in the Bible, in my opinion. So here's what he says. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Okay, first thing we see here is the ultimate Jesus juke. They try to stone him, and he just ran away. It's amazing, amazing. Fun details in the Bible, you should enjoy them. Second thing we see that is far more important for a theological development is when he said this simple yet profound statement that before Abraham was, I am. Okay, I don't know about you guys. English is my second language, so I'm just checking here. 
that is not a grammatically correct sentence. Like what is he even saying? He's using like the past and the present. It's kind of confusing. Here's what Jesus was referencing, this moment in Exodus chapter 3. That's right, all the way back, Exodus chapter 3, where Moses, the liberator of Israel, was met by a burning bush. If you guys heard the burning bush story, it's a fantastic story. I can't read out the whole thing, but you should check it out. Exodus chapter 3, when you go home. But there's a burning bush, and God is in that bush, and he says to Moses, hey, Moses, I've got a plan of liberation for Israel. Moses can't even look at the bush. He hides his face from the bush because the glory of God is so beautiful that he cannot get too close. And then Moses asks God a very simple yet profound question. And he says, what do I tell people of your name? Who do I tell sent me? And the answer God gives Moses has rung throughout the history of Judeo-Christian history. And he says, I am. I am who I am. I am the God of your father, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. I am am. Here's what God was communicating to Moses. He didn't need a name given to him by human hands, for he existed before humanity. He existed before all of created history. He was who he is. He is the I am. Okay, fast forward from Exodus chapter 3 to John chapter 8. What do we find as Jesus says in this text? He says, before Abraham was, I am. He's saying to the Jews, I am God. From Exodus 3 to John chapter 8, we see the congruence of the I am God who needs no introduction, who needs no affirmation, who stands on his own two feet as the God of the created universe. That's why they wanted to kill Jesus. Guys, they did not want to kill Jesus because I'm unlimited fish and chips. You know what I mean? Like, that's exciting, okay? It wasn't the miracles. It wasn't him raising the blind, I mean, say, helping the blind see or the paralyzed walk. It was the fact that he claimed divinity. And in his divinity, he called people to walk with him. So how can he say these things? Why can Jesus say that freedom only comes through his truth, not our culture, not anything else, but that we're enslaved of our sin and we need freedom because he is the I am? How can he say that you are a son or daughter of the devil outside of the grace of Jesus because he is the I am? It's who he is. He can proclaim the truth and it's not just who he is, it's what he's done. I want you guys to think really quickly about this. This is how we're gonna close our time together. We are enslaved to our sin because of our guilt, because of the ways that we transgress God. Think about the death that Jesus died, the death that a slave should have died, yet he was innocent. Think about our invitation into the family of God. We tend to think this is so normal. Jesus Christ, the son of God, invites us to, into the family of God. That is not normal when our father is the devil. We had no chance to traverse the father of the devil, the family of the devil, into the family of God, except for the reality that the son of God would die on our behalf so that we would have an invitation in. The reason why it's so important that Jesus is the I am is because we needed a divine intervention. The enslavement was too real. The family of the devil was too deep. We needed a divine intervention to come and rescue us from our sin. So in light of that, in light of the freedom of the gospel that we have, here's my invitation for us this week, Redemption Church. What if we just stopped caring about if what other people thought of us? You know, like what if we were less concerned that people thought we were free? 
that people thought we were from the right family, that people thought we were more holy or healthy or humble than we actually were. And we just came to each other in connection group and we just confessed the ways that we're not those things. I think what we would experience is a freedom from Jesus, an invitation into the family, a holy community that can only be possible through gospel-centered living. Let me pray that that would be true for our church family this week. Father, as we look at this text, I'm just reminded of how kind you've been to us, that we are slaves to our sin, that our sin controls us, it manipulates us, it coerces us, it makes us do what we do not want to do. We are sin, slaves to our sin, and yet the sun sets free. I love that message. And I love the reality that apart from you, we are sons and daughters of the devil. We are not a part of the family of God. And yet, because you are the I am, because of the divine intervention of Christ, we now get to experience the family that we were made for. So Father, as we go into this week, here's my prayer for us as a church family, that we would be honest and authentic with the ways that we're enslaved, that we would recognize the evil in our hearts, and then the Son would set us free and invite us into the family of God. Father, pray that our church would be marked with humility and honesty, not with pride and self-deception, and ultimately, Jesus, that this morning, whatever we've come in tonight, this morning with, we would bring it to you in worship. We'd be honest about our sin, and we'd ask for the Son to set us free. In your name we pray. Amen.